You're listening to a sermon from Plus Life, a church that exists to see lives changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our prayer is that you will be stirred in your heart and renewed in your mind as you hear the preaching of God's word today. Go ahead and tell someone the title of my sermon this morning, Anatomy of Sheep 101. Going back to school this morning. Did you you do the the, the required reading for this? No, it's okay. Uh, That's true. We just read it. Uh, Before we get into this morning's sermon, just uh, want to announce to the church on behalf of Elder Benji and Mira that uh, Sister Mira gave... Don't clap yet. (laughs) We're getting to it. That Sister Sister Mira gave birth to Nora Shailene Thomas yesterday morning, November 17th. Uh, healthy baby girl, and uh, of course, we've been. This is something that we've been together as a church family has been praying for them and with them uh, through these uh, these these years, and and we praise God for this great gift and uh, of, of Nora and uh, this life that they that God has blessed them with. So send your warm regards to them. Send them your love. Uh, I believe they were just discharged, and so they should be at home soon. And. Um, yeah, so bless them however way you can. We thank God again for this great gift of life. In addition, as, as, uh, as Sister Precious mentioned earlier, today is the women's ministry uh, event. So ladies, please, if you have time, and, and uh, hopefully you, you've put it out in your schedule, make time out for that. I'm sure there's some great women's stuff that's been planned. I don't, I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm sure there'll be great things involved there. Uh, and I know at least as, as a guy who went to the men's event last week, it was very edifying and, and very encouraging. I went home to my wife after that event and went, babe, I'm, I'm sorry, you know, I've, I've been fa- I'm falling short in so many areas. You know, I've been very edified by that, by that great event. So, uh, I hope the guys, the other guys, have did the same thing. <laughs> uh, but uh, but so, ladies, I'm excited for you and what God has in store um, this this later this afternoon for you, ladies. So we are back in our Gospel of John series. These past two weeks, we've been looking at the I am statements of Christ. I am the door uh, of life that we looked at in the first week, and we saw how there, really there's an exclusivity. In Christ, that is only through him can we find salvation, can we find eternal life. And then, of course, last week we looked at Christ's fourth I am statement, which is, I am the good shepherd. And we we saw how Jesus really distinguishes himself from any other shepherds, any other teachers, any religious leaders of the past, or, or even anyone who came after him, in that, Again, he's the only shepherd that died for the sheep. He is the only shepherd that truly knows the sheep. And we saw how how all of these I am statements really point to to the divinity of Christ and Christ fulfilling Old Testament prophecies of who God would be to his people. And as as we've been seeing, just this entire passage of, of John chapter 10 really revolves around this theme of shepherd and sheep. And, of course, even the thieves and robbers who tried to steal the sheep. And as much as this, this, this past, these passages have been giving us insight into the character and nature of who Christ is, the good shepherd, if we read carefully, we also see characteristics of those who follow him, the sheep. 
And, and the way that Christ describes these sheep, his sheep, he describes them in a very unique way that reinforces the doctrines of grace that we believe, and as, and as we'll look at this morning. So our goal for our passage this morning is to examine uh, the, the characteristics of the sheep as described by Christ in our passage, to be reminded of the doctrines of grace that reinforce our relationship with the shepherd, that we would also be reminded of the privilege that we have as sheep who are called to be his own, to be part of his flock. Because as we'll see, and, and I'm sure you, you, feel, you might feel this way, but being a sheep is not that great. Right? It's, if, you, if, you know, as a kid, you grow up and, and you're imagining pretending to be an animal of some sort, right? You pick a gorilla or a lion, right? Something that's something ferocious and strong. No one picks a sheep. I don't know what kid picks a sheep. But there is, they're usually not the first pick of the animal kingdom. Yet, we see in our passage, we, followers of Christ, are, 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 are metaphorically called sheep. Symbolically called sheep for a purpose. And I hope as we study our passage, we, we really come to realize why this, this, this animal is attributed to Christ's followers. And why it reinforces this idea that Jesus really is a good shepherd. A good shepherd who doesn't abandon his sheep, his flock, despite the good or bad qualities that his sheep might have. Ultimately, the hope is to remind us what, what the Good Shepherd has done for us. For us, that, that we should walk with Him and follow after Him. That we should walk with Him in, in, in gratitude and in, in worship of what He has done. So let's get into our passage this morning. There's a lot to cover uh, in our class this morning. Uh, but first, let's, before we get into the, the meat of our passage here, let's talk about sheep. For a moment, right? Because as mentioned, there's a there, we're we're being called sheep in this passage. The followers of Christ are called sheep in this passage, and it, unless you're a shepherd or you have a pet sheep at home that I don't know about, then you might not really know what what's this deal with sheep. And um, unless you've been around a lot of sheep before, maybe you you miss some some nuances here in our text and. Um, I remember when we, well, a couple of years back now, when I spent some time in New Zealand, uh, it, was, it was interesting to note that there are more humans on that island, sorry, more sheep on that island than sheep, sorry, humans, got that backwards, more sheep on that island than humans. In fact, I think it's like uh, for every one human, there's 22 sheep on that island. That's, that's how, uh, that's how, how uh, the, the, the overpopulation of sheep is in New Zealand. Um, but, but so unless you really have been around some sheep, you might miss some nuances in our text here. So why are we likened to sheep? Why are we described to be like sheep? Uh, did a lot of research on this, so you don't have to do it. But first and foremost, sheep are livestock animals, right? They're bred for a purpose. They're raised either for wool or meat. So they're, they're animals with a purpose. In addition to that, uh, sheep are natural followers. They usually follow. They usually follow either the shepherd or whoever sheep is is leading the, the the pack. And sometimes they follow the wrong things. There are even stories of, of from farmers who who have lost entire flocks of sheep because one sheep decided to jump over a cliff, and the rest of them just blindly follow the sheep. 
In addition to that, sheep are fearful creatures. They're prey animals, right? They're the ones that are hunted. They're not the hunter. Um, they're, they're often susceptible to dangers, not just from wild beasts, but even flowers. You know, if, if sheep eat certain flowers, they end up dying, right? Um, so they, they, they're, they're, they're very fearful and prey-like animals in this sense, and why they need to be protected oftentimes. Uh, if you've ever seen a, a, a pack of sheep or a flock of sheep ever cornered by a, by a wolf or, or, or a hunting animal, they'll often gather together in, in bunches and groups of sheep of, of, or in that flock, but it's not for protecting each other, but because they're paralyzed from fear that they don't run away. There's even some sheep who pass out when hunters come, like some like great defense mechanism there, right? Uh, it's like you're just, here, eat me, kind of deal. Uh, in addition to that, Sheep are very much prone to wandering. If you've ever noticed, sheep have rectangle or, or square eyes. And the reason for this is that the, their main focus as they're eating is that they sort of have this panoramic view of things, but they don't see what's in front of them. And so you'll have sheep who, who will sort of mow the grass eating and then eventually get lost from the rest of the sheep because all they can see is the sides, but not what's in front of them. That's often why they wander. They wander off. In addition to this, I, I think this was the, the most uh, fascinating fact about sheep that I found out, but sheep are, sheep are also prone to being downcast. It's a term that shepherds use. Uh, if you've ever read through the Psalms, you hear in Psalm 42 at least, why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? That's, that's taking the imagery of sheep. This a term of being downcast is, when, is what happens when a sheep eats too much and they end up flipping over on their back and then they can't get up. And it takes, it, it, it takes a shepherd to turn them over because 24 hours later they can actually die from being on their backs all day. So with all of that said, this is, this is what we're being attributed to as, a, a sheep. Anyone feel flattered being called a sheep? Right? Mark's saying, yep. Ali could probably attest to Mark being downcast sometimes. I mean, I feel like I can be downcast sometimes. You, eat, you know, you, you eat shawarma one day and you're just you know, on your back the rest of the day, 24 hours. You need your wife to turn you over or something, right? But it's not, really, it's not really a flattering thing to be called a sheep. It's, it's, it's not a great thing to be called a sheep, knowing these facts about sheep. Sheep, sheep aren't that smart. They're, they're prey animals. They're hunted. They, they, they can't get up after they fall down. Yet this is what our passage relates us to, calls us, as, as Jesus the Good Shepherd were called the sheep. And really that's what we've been reading up until this point in chapter 10. So... Where we left off in our passage, after Christ has made all these I am statements, this, these explicit declarations of his character, of his nature, of who he is in this, this salvific plan of God, and he's the only way to the Father, we pick up in verse 19 in terms of what the people's response is. Look at this with me once more. Verse 19. So after he said all these things, there was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? So if you recall, there's not just normal Jews in, in, 
in this discussion of, with Jesus, there's also Pharisees involved. This is taking place right after chapter 9 where Jesus healed this man who was born blind. And there's this great debate that, about who Jesus is once again. And as we, as we just read, there, these people are once again debating the identity of Christ. Who is this man? Then we pick up in verse 22 here. At that time... The Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was, it was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So we talked about last week as well, where the, the Feast of Dedication or the Feast of Lights is what we know today as Hanukkah. This is to commemorate the great Maccabean revolt that took place a couple hundred years before Jesus uh, led by Judas Maccabee. And so it really ties into everything that Jesus is talking about in our passage because, again, Jesus is saying all, the, all the, those who came before him are thieves and robbers. That's including ju this Judas Maccabee who led this revolt and who the people, the Jews, were celebrating during this time. Then it says in verse 24 of our passage, so the Jews gathered around him and said, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. We'll see next week that this question isn't really a, a sincere inquiry of Christ of whether or not he was the son of God, but really they needed evidence, they needed reason to accuse him of blasphemy and stone him. We'll see that in verse uh, in next week in, in the following passages. Then in verse 25, Jesus says, or Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And this is where we start to really understand some of the characteristics of the sheep of God and the unique way that Christ uses to describe them. There's a, there's a key distinction here that is being made between those who are Christ's sheep, those who follow him, and those who are not his sheep, those who do not follow him, and, and really, those who do not understand. Although it's, although, it's, although it's plainly obvious in our text, there are those who are not considered sheep according to Christ. And this is on top of what Christ has already been expounding on throughout this, this entire chapter. If you remember in John chapter 10, verse 3, if you look at just a couple of verses above, it says, To him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, and they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Now, contextually speaking, this whole discourse is to point out in our passage why the Pharisees did not believe Christ. Why, despite the evidence that was given to them in chapter 9 about Christ's divinity and what Christ could do and his character, his identity, all of that stuff, why these Pharisees still did not believe him. And, and, and this is why John is recording this and giving this, this reasoning for this. And, of course, we even read, we just read in verse 6, the, this figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. In verse 6 of John chapter 10, again, this is to explain why these Pharisees did not believe. It's only those who are considered his sheep that understand and recognize the voice of the shepherd and truly follow Christ. 
Now, what's important to note here is that there is a tone from Christ throughout this passage, passage that his sheep have already been determined. He says to the Pharisees, you don't understand because you're not part of my flock. It's not, it's not, a, it's not a flock that's still being created, although there's some sheep of his that still need to be gathered. This, this idea or this identity of being a sheep of Christ has already been determined, at least from Christ's words and his tone. There's a sense in that he already knows who or who is not his sheep, even those who will be. It's again, in verse 14 to 16 of our passage here, it says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock, one shepherd. As mentioned last week, this knowing of the sheep extends even to eternity past. Just as the Father knows the Son, the Son knows the sheep. What is the extent of that knowing that the Father has for the Son? There is never a time in eternity past where the Father did not know the Son. So therefore, there is never a time in eternity past where the Son did not know his own sheep. In addition to this, of course, we just read, Jesus says, there are sheep that is not of this fold, and that's referring to the Gentiles who would eventually come and believe through, though the Gospels had yet to be given out to them. And Jesus would be gathering them as well. They're also part of his flock. One flock, one shepherd. All of this leads us to conclude that because Jesus already knows who the sheep are, that the sheep have already been predetermined, and the full counsel of Scripture would also say that those sheep have already been chosen. This is the first characteristic that we get about sheep from our Savior in this passage. The sheep are chosen. Sheep are chosen. This, of course, deals uh, and, and refers to the doctrine of election. A doctrine that declares that God in His sovereignty freely chose those who would be saved, those who would be His sheep. We looked at this last week. In Romans chapter 8, verse 29 to 30, it says, For those whom He foreknew... He also predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Last week, we talked about the difference between foreknowing and foreknowledge. What is being referred here to by the Apostle Paul is that, is that God foreknew. He, 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 he had foreknown those that he would predestine. It's the same idea of knowing that Jesus talks about in, in John chapter 10. The difference, again, in the idea of foreknowing and foreknowledge. Foreknowledge simply knows, it simply deals with facts. You know something beforehand. Foreknowing is relational. It deals with love. To have been loved beforehand. And I think that's very important to distinguish between because foreknowing is relational. And if we think the other hand that God chose the elect via his foreknowledge, that's actually transactional. And it's completely different. And oftentimes we, there's this mistake in trying to understand predestination and the doctrine of the elect in that we, we often think, or sometimes we, we think, you know, God looks down the quarters of time and he sees the decisions and the, the good works that people have made and whether or not they're going to choose them. And based on that, God elects them. God chooses them. That's transactional. 
God sees you do something for him. God sees you do good things for him, that you go to church in the future, and therefore, that's why he chooses you. That's transactional. And we know, just on a human level, if we see that in the world, if that kind of a relationship in the world, we know that's not actually a good relationship. It's more like a business partner, right? You do this for me, so I'll do this for you. That's not the kind of grace, and that's not the kind of love that, that God that God implements when he chooses the elect. It's not the case with God. God's work of election is unconditional. Not based on whether we are good or will do good or will choose him. We discussed this uh, a few weeks ago as well in our, in our first sermon back in the Gospel of John series, the story of Jacob and Esau. This is a great example of this, the, the doctrine of election. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 9. Verse 10 to 13. Not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. Before, as that passage said, before Jacob and Esau were, were born, and they had done anything good or bad, God had already determined that Esau would serve Jacob. That's the picture of election. Often our reaction to this, this statement or what we're talking about here is, how is that fair, right? How is that, how is that act of God fair? Why does God choose one over the other? Why does God choose some but not all? How is it fair? The problem with that line of questioning is that it assumes that God should choose any at all. The reality is, what is fair is that God chooses no one. What is fair is that, that because of our sin nature, God should not love anyone. In fact, everyone should be hated. Right? Romans chapter 3, right? we know there's a, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands God, no one seeks for God. God is holy, man is sinful, we are all rebels against God. So what reason would God have to choose anyone? We, I, I heard this last night on a, on a podcast I was listening to, right? We were, we, were, we were not only born as sinners, we were born without innocence before God. This is why the story of Jacob and Esau is so important to this illustration. Because, listen, they were twins. Jacob and Esau were twins. Aside from some external features that we read about in the book of Genesis, Esau was a manly man, right? He had hair all over his body. He had hair when he came out of his mom. That's amazing, right? A full, set, like a full beard or something. Aside from these external factors, there's nothing that distinguishes these two. I, I had a conversation with a brother just a few weeks ago about this exact story, and we realized that Jacob was even maybe worse than Esau. Jacob was the one who, who tricked his father, stole the birthright, acted as a coward. So what reason would God choose him? Again, it's not because of anything good or bad that these kids or these men would eventually do or did do. Despite the shortcomings, despite the failures, God chose Jacob. How is that fair? 
How is that fair if we continue to ask? Again, the punish, what is fair between a holy God and sinful man is that we get the punishment of our sin. We get God's wrath, we experience hell. That's what's fair. Because we, we're the ones who broke the laws of God, the standards of God. That's what's fair. That God hates everyone, that's what's fair. That God loves no one, that's what's fair. And, and listen, if God did, if God did that, if we we're all just condemned to hell, there's no provision of salvation, listen, God would still be justified because he is a holy, holy, holy God. But God, in his sovereignty, withholds what is fair, what we deserve for our sins, places it on Christ, and gives us what we don't deserve. Mercy and grace. Why? Because as in that passage that we just read, it says, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. What's God's purpose? In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 to 6, it says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which we, he has blessed us in the beloved. The reason for such unconditional grace that God pours out on us is love. God determined before the foundations of the world that he would make for himself a family, one, cons one consisting of those who by no means deserve to be loved, deserve to be in that family, yet are redeemed and forgiven and adopted as sons and daughters of the Most High God. This is the sheep, the sheep, the sheepfold that we are part of. You whom Christ loved and whom he knew before time itself. That despite having seen your sins and your shortcomings, he still chose you and chose to die for you. The sheep are chosen. In addition to this, in our passage, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Similar, it's a similar statement in verse 4. He says the sheep follow him, and for, for they know his voice. It's interesting how this statement is, is, is said by Jesus almost as a matter of fact. It's not that they may follow him. They possibly will follow him. They, they have the chance or opportunity to follow him. It doesn't say that. It doesn't even say that the sheep choose to follow him. It says that they will follow him. It has that tone. And so here's the second characteristic that we see in our passage of the sheep. Sheep will follow. The sheep will follow. The sheep of Christ are identified as those who follow him, those who go through the door, those who follow the good shepherd. And of course, this idea of following, at least in the context of our passage and what's happening with the Pharisees, it's, we understand is those who understand Christ's words, those who believe in the Savior, those are the ones who actually follow him. Again, this is attempting to, to answer the reason as to why the Pharisees did not believe Jesus and why they did not follow him. Scripture tells us that those who do not believe and those who do not follow, 
Christ or God in general, don't listen to God's word, is don't do so because they don't do so because of their sin nature. They suppress the truth of God in their sin nature. They deny and reject the truth of God. We've talked about this plenty of times, total depravity. Verse, uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth of God. Then in verse 21, Paul says, For although they knew God, they did not, not, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. This is a, again, as we know, this is the depravity of man. Why some do not understand the scriptures, the gospel. Why some do not, despite how the, the evidence and the overwhelming uh, uh, beauty of the gospel, are not drawn by. In fact, even blatantly refuse to follow it. Because their hearts were hardened in their sin nature. On the flip side, we see that the sheep of God, the followers of God, actually do follow. In fact, willingly follow. The foundation of this truth, of course, is in the doctrine of irresistible grace. Or effectual call, the effectual call of God. That is to say that those whom the Holy Spirit has regenerated in the heart has been given a new nature and they will follow Christ. Not just will follow Christ, they desire to follow Christ. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26 to 27 says, I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is God himself talking in terms of what he's going to do for his people. He will give them a new heart, replace the heart of stone, give them a completely new heart, so a new heart that would desire after the things of his. And he himself, by his spirit, will cause us to follow, cause us to obey him. The Holy Spirit moves our wicked, depraved stone heart, a heart that only desired after sin and the flesh and rebellion against God. Disobedience against God. And he puts in the elect into the sheep a new heart of flesh. It desires the things of God. When we're, we're in our sin, the only thing that we would desire after are the things that rejected God. The new heart desires the things of holiness and righteousness. This is the premise and this is what it means uh, when we talk about irresistible grace or effectual, the effectual call of God. There's this, <coughs> excuse me, there's often this misconception in this, this doctrine of irresistible grace that God drags people kicking and screaming into his grace, right? You're going to receive my grace, you're going to receive my love whether you like it or not. And, and oftentimes that's what the word irresistible invokes, something that you can't resist. <coughs> excuse me. But similar to the previous point on unconditional election, there is a presupposition that believes that we would want to resist God in the first place. Maybe, and most definitely in our old nature, again, in our old heart, our stone heart, we would want to resist God. But with a heart that has been 
regenerated, replaced with a flesh, a heart of flesh, when we are given a new nature by the Holy Spirit, when we are made new creations, as Scripture calls us, by the Holy Spirit, we would no more want to resist God than a, than a fish resists water. We are willfully and desperately drawn in. And reality, and reality, the, the reality is that despite our new heart, there are times where we still resist God. Even as believers, and we, we know this. That's why Scripture calls us not to, to quench or grieve the Holy Spirit. Because in our, fresh, in our, in our flesh, we are still capable of re refusing God's will for us, God's plans for us. But at the end of the day, no matter the wall of resistance we put up against God, God's grace is so powerful that it overcomes even our rebellion, even our resistance. As a great theologian, R.C. Sproul, puts it, God's grace affects what God intends to affect by it. And we know this to be true in our own life. If ever as a believer or maybe even an unbeliever, you found yourself running away from God, rebelling against God, being disobedient, actively trying to suppress the truth of God in your life. You quickly come to know God's relentless pursuit of you. Maybe it's through the prayers of family members of the church. Maybe it's occasions in your life where God shows up when you least expect it. Like a good shepherd truly seeking out that one Lost sheep that has gone astray. God's pursuit of us does not cease. Until eventually, when, when your rebellion has broken you, when the world has left you starving for something that it cannot offer, you can't help but throw yourself at the mercies and the grace of the holy God. And you don't do so reluctantly, you don't do so with hesitation. Maybe doubtfully at first, doubting whether or not a holy God can accept you despite your sins and your fleeing from Him. In that moment of surrender and obedience and repentance, you willfully receive God's grace and mercies and forgiveness and love. You desperately throw yourself at Him knowing that he's the only one that can satisfy the longings of your soul. That's what this irresistible grace is. Christ's sheep will follow him. It may take a time in the wilderness, through trials and hardships, to remind us of what we really need in this life and in the next. But eventually God's grace will overcome our rebellion and we will freely and joyfully receive his grace. Look at verse 27 with me. It says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they, ne they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father am one, are one. Here's the last characteristic of the sheep. Sheep are kept. Sheep are kept. 
Do you feel the weight of Jesus' words in this passage that we just read? No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father, I and the Father are one. This is the Savior himself, the Son of God, creator of the universe, spoke everything into existence, who, who does not lie, whose word is true and faithful, declares to us, to you, this morning, I give them eternal life. They will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. You feel the weight of that? If that doesn't invoke any sense of security to us believers, I don't know what will. This is the very words of the Good Shepherd himself. This, pro- this promise of eternal security that only Christ alone can give. This, this, this idea that we will never perish, that no one, nothing, not even us, will be able to remove us from his grasp. Paul puts it this way, Romans chapter 8, verse 37. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Yet despite that that explicit declaration from God's word, from God's mouth himself, we sheep still often doubt our own security. As if somehow we're the, ex- the, the exception to, that, to these verses, right? Yes, nothing in all creation, not even angels or demons, can take me out of the Savior's grasp. But if I fall hard enough, if I mess up big enough, Say, if I stay far away enough, if, I, if I'm deceived well enough, I can remove myself from God's good graces. That's not how it works. Once again, another false pretense that we often have when we're talking about these doctrines of grace is that oftentimes we think the maintenance of our salvation is dependence on us. It's not. There's no doubt that we have some response, we have responsibility in our, in our walk with God, in our relationship God, with God to pursue Him, to obey His Word, to love Christ and the church. But at the end of the day, God is the one who keeps us, who sustains us, who maintains our salvation, who preserves our salvation, our relationship with Him. Doctrinally speaking, this touches on the perseverance of the saints, the preservation of the saints. The idea that those who have truly been regenerated, those who have been born again, those who are truly Christ's sheep who follow him, will be saved and preserved to the end. Will be preserved until Christ returns or he calls us home. Paul says, we see this all throughout his letters as well. Paul says in Philippians, and I am sure of this, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. The writers of Hebrews says, We look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And again, that doesn't negate any responsibility that we have as believers to follow after Christ, to be in his word, to pray, to fellowship with other believers, to stay away from sin. It doesn't negate any of that. We read in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, 
Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So the responsibility is there. We are to work out our salvation, meaning we are to do the things that we are called to do as believers. To read our Bibles and pray and, 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 and revere God and worship God and fellowship with other believers. But the, the, the clause there in verse 13 is that it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Ultimately, even in our efforts to pursue God in this life, in our walk with him, it is still God who, by his spirit, empowers us to do so. It helps us do so. And this ought to be hope for us. The security of our salvation is not dependent on our fickle hearts. That ought to be security for us. You know, this past week I was, I was watching this, this debate between a, a, a Catholic uh, apologist and this Christian podcast. I don't think it was actually a debate, really, but it was more of a talk. And... It was on the topic of why Catholics pray to Mary and to dead saints. And the way that this apologist for Catholicism presented his arguments was very eloquent. And, and he made heresy sound really good. <laughs> and then so I was reading the comments section on this, on this video and many evangelicals approving even of this discussion and his position. And even former evangel evangelicals who, who, are, who somehow converted to Catholicism saying, yeah, this is great. This is why I, I converted to Catholicism. And, and if I were to be honest, I started questioning my own position on this topic of, have I, have I been wrong this entire time? Shouldn't we be praying to dead saints? Or, you know, where, where am I on this position now? Fortunately, right, your pastor read his Bible <laughs> to diffuse these doubts Reminded in God's word that it explicitly declares in Deuteronomy chapter 18 that anyone who inquires of the dead is an abomination to the Lord. Pretty clear. He likens it to witchcraft, not to mention that this doctrine takes leaps and bounds to arrive at this conclusion that we can pray to Mary and pray to the saints. At the same time, we have... Jesus as our direct access to the Father. That's what we just read about in John chapter 10. It's only through him can we reach the Father. That was the reason why the veil was torn at the crucifixion so that we can go to God directly and approach him with confidence knowing that we will receive grace and mercies in our times of need. All of that to say, this doctrine of the perseverance of the saints and that it is God who preserves his sheep. This truth that it's Christ who keeps his sheep is absolutely crucial to our walk. Absolutely encouraging to our walk, knowing how fickle our hearts are, how prone we are to discouragement, to deception, to disobedience. It's a doctrine that declares that man, even when I fall short, even in my doubts, even when my heart wanders away, it is our Savior who brings us back with his rotted staff. 
It's he who pursues us, always. Because at the end of the day, if the sustenance, if the, if the maintenance of our salvation was left to us, listen, none of us would be here today. And by God's grace, we have a good shepherd who keeps us, who draws us back in, who diffuses the lies, who forgives our disobedience, who pursues us even when we wander. So what do we say to all of these things? So as we conclude this morning. We talked about the, the, a lot of doctrines here that are often debated amongst Christians. Unconditional election, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. I sprinkled some total depravity in there and some limited atonement, if you notice. But like that salt guy, just some doctrine here, some doctrine there. What's our response to all this? I think oftentimes our knee-jerk reaction to these truths is to argue, to question, to debate these doctrines. And discussion over these things is good, and I think it's edifying. And if you have you know, questions after the service, let's talk about these things. You bring your arguments, I'll bring Elder Joel, that's fine. But consider a moment that these truths are a reality because as Jesus describes us in the passage, in our passage this morning, we are sheep. We are prone to blemish, prone to wander, prone to be in danger. We are sheep. If we truly grasp the, the idea that without a good shepherd to truly lead us and secure us, who fulfills these truths that we've talked about, these doctrines that we talked about, we would have been carried off by wolves by now. That's the reality of it. If these truths be true, our natural response as believers, as those who have a new heart, ought to be a life of gratitude, a life of praise, of humility. That despite not having earned it, despite having done nothing good, God chose us, chose me, chose you before the foundations of this world to be part of this sheepfold, his flock. Paul, after explaining these same truths throughout his letter to the Romans, these same doctrines of grace, he concludes his letter in Romans chapter 12. Verse 1, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And I love this. I love what Paul says. Because though the sacrifice of sheep are no longer necessary for salvation, for atonement of sin, we who are the sheep of God are still called to be living sacrifices to God, to live a life of gratitude and worship in response to this great salvation that we have received. Regardless of where you stand on these truths, the call always is to gratitude and humility, to be grateful and humbled at this privilege that we have been called sons and daughters of a holy, holy, holy God, despite us never having deserved it or earned it. That is the call. To the lost, I 
encourage you if you're listening to these words and you're thinking about the security and the hope that we've talked about today, the responsibility that you have is to respond with faith. That's the first responsibility you have. That's the only way, again, the only way to the Father is through Jesus Christ. To put your faith in him and what he did on the cross for your sake, for your sins. What he did in the grave, dying the death that you should have died. Put your faith in Jesus Christ that his work is sufficient, is enough. Put your faith in him. And for the rest of us, I pray that as, as, as sheep of the good shepherd, we may faithfully follow the one who has faithfully called us and has pursued us despite our many shortcomings and who will one day return for us, his sheep. Let's pray. Oh, gracious God and Heavenly Father, we know that the things that we've discussed this morning are are sometimes too marvelous, O oh God, for our thoughts. Too mysterious, O oh God, to fully accept and believe. But the summation of everything that we've discussed, God, is your gospel. Your good news. That you loving us, you loving your sheep despite us not having deserved it or done anything to earn it, chose to die a, sin, a sinner's death on our behalf. And I pray, oh God, as we reflect on these things, that you would humble our hearts, oh God. That you would cultivate in us gratitude that would blossom into a life of worship as living sacrifices, O oh God. Lord, we really would not be here, O oh God, if it were not for your work, your hand in our salvation, your grace and mercy, your forgiveness and your love in our lives. And I pray, O oh God, for the heart who has yet to, to surrender to all of that, to receive all that, to put their faith in you. Lord, I pray that today would be a day of salvation, that God, they would turn to you in repentance of their sin and rebellion, and they would put their hope and trust in you this morning. And they too, just as we have, Lord, the security in you, a living hope that not just promises us eternity, but secures for us eternity. Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your grace and your love. Pray, God, today would be a day of life change. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that you were blessed by the sermon today. If you would like to learn about the gospel or know more about our church, please visit pluslifepeople.com. Remember to subscribe for more content. Until next time, stay blessed.